everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pona's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. In 1990s, in the atmosphere of political turmoil and dramatic economic decline, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation enjoyed broad public support. By mid-90s, the Communists had the largest faction in the Russian legislature. They effectively torpedoed every legal initiative launched by the then-President Boris Yeltsin and were referred to as the irreconcilable opposition. In 1996, the Communist Party leader, Gennady Zuganov, ran against Boris Yeltsin. Yeltsin barely won. Four years later, Vladimir Putin became Russian president, but although he was anointed by Yeltsin, he did not inherit Yeltsin's anti-communist stance. The Communist Party, the Kremlin's staunch enemy, almost instantly turned into its ally. The Communists lost the majority in the Duma. From the irreconcilable opposition, they turned into a systemic opposition that fulfilled a useful mission for the Kremlin by absorbing the vote of the discontented constituency. They may pour verbal criticism on the Kremlin, but can be relied on for backing the Kremlin on the more important issues. Ideologically, the Communist Party leadership pledges allegiance to Lenin and Stalin and the glorious Soviet past. They uphold the idea of state property on means of production, but have little, if any, influence on economic policy. Like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in its later years, today's senior communists preach moral and social conservatism. Unlike their Soviet forefathers, they have no interest in atheism. As an established political party, the communists may open way to a political career and its perks. This makes the party attractive to younger Russians with political ambitions. While the top leader, Gennady Zyuganov, is in his 70s, most rank-and-file members of his party are much younger, some even young enough to be his grandchildren. In this episode of our podcast, we will talk about the Communist Party's relations with the Kremlin, the divisions between its leaders and its rank-and-file members, its attitude to Alexei Navalny, and its tactic in the lead-up to the September Duma elections. My guests today are Nikolai Petrov, the head of the Center for Political Geographic Research and Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House Russia and Eurasia Program, and Felix Light, a reporter at the Moscow Times who has covered recent developments in and around the Communist Party. My first question is to you, Nikolai. We remember uh, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation that torpedoed every initiative launched by Boris Yeltsin at the time when he was the president of Russia. The Communist Party leader, Gennady Zyuganov, ran for president against Yeltsin, and it was a close race. But since Vladimir Putin became president, the Communist Party grew docile and became a so-called systemic opposition as we know it today. How did this happen? Uh, Maria, I would say that the role the Communist Party is playing did start in 1996 when there was the choice for Gennady Zyuganov either to fight in order to win elections but facing the risk to lose everything or to accept his role as for the second player. And it was then when he did choose not to confront with the Kremlin in a decisive way. Since that time, well, at the time of Yeltsin, he was the leader of the major faction at the State Duma. That's why his behavior was different from 
what it used to be after 1999 elections. But uh, I would say that the cooperation between the Communist Party and the Kremlin did start as early as in the year 2000, when the unity at that time agreed with the Communist Party to create a kind of a union, a bloc, in order to push out other party of power, the fatherland of Russia. And since that time, the Kremlin is pretty careful and uh, it does use the system of sticks and carrots in order to keep the Communist Party under its control. There were several attempts to push out Zuganov. There was the Just Russia established in the year 2006 in order to threaten the Communist Party that, well, there is somebody else at uh, the same leftist part of the political spectrum. There are many numerous party spoilers which do exploit the uh, term communist party or even KPSS, and there are different other means. From other side, the Kremlin gives communist gubernatorial seats. The Kremlin gave them seven of single-mandate districts in the last uh, Duma elections. And the Communist Party controls uh, the second biggest faction at the State Duma. Still, if we go back to 1999 and 2000, when Putin aunt just became president, his government effectively excluded liberals um, or Democrats, as they were referred to at that time, from the political life. Why were the communists spared? Why were they allowed to stay in the political field? If I remember correctly, communists got a few chairmanships in the Duma that year after the election of 99. What are the benefits for both parties, the Communist Party and the Kremlin, of this cohabitation? Uh, I would start with saying that the attitude of the Kremlin uh, with regard to the Communist Party is not uh, any kind of a goodwill. And the fact that the Communist Party is still a very important element of Russia's political landscape is connected with the fact that, first of all, it's the single real political party with grassroots branches and with popular support. They do not have any in my view, any essential political differences now uh, with the United Russia, because the United Russia exploits populist slogans just like the Communist Party, and they've uh, stolen a lot of slogans from communists. What is important is the fact that the Communist Party does not make any real threat, but uh, is playing a very important role for the Kremlin, gathering votes which are not caught by the party of power. So in case of communists, I would say that, in my view, this cohabitation is not that much in favor of the party in whole, rather in favor of Zuganov himself. Gennady Zuganov, the leader of the Communist Party, enjoys the life of top-level officials in, in Russia. He dreams to put his grandson Leonid Zuganov into his office after leaving from the position of the chairman of the Communist Party, and the Kremlin is eager to help him, to assist him with this. The Kremlin, in turn, gets convenient candidates in regional elections, like, say, last year, when communists didn't even try to nominate their candidates in several gubernatorial races, or in 2019, when there was the candidate who was considered to be pretty weak in St. Petersburg uh, gubernatorial elections, Vladimir Bortka. But finally, due to the weakness of 
the major candidates backed by the Kremlin, it appeared that uh, Bortka could pose real threat. And that's why just a couple of weeks before the voting, well, he dropped out from the race. There is another very important sphere where communists do cooperate uh, with the Kremlin. It's, first of all, pretty close relations between the Communist Party and uh, Rostek Chemizov, Sergei Chemizov. And uh, it's the fact that the Kremlin can use communists to serve for its goals sometimes, like, say, hundreds of convoys uh, coming from Russia to Donbass, to Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Formally, they are financed by communists, but uh, we know that there is just cover operation, and that's a way how communist party can serve very useful role. Felix, this cohabitation may look peaceful. And Nikolai just mentioned that there are no essential political differences between the communists and the Kremlin and the chief pro-Kremlin force, United Russia. However, this cohabitation may appear not very comfortable for some members of the Communist Party, and especially those with high ambition. I think there have been instances recently when prominent communists got in trouble. Yeah, so I think... The atmosphere and the sort of relationship between the presidential administration, which is to say the the office of the Kremlin, of the leadership, which essentially coordinates domestic politics, and the Communist Party has uh, deteriorated more recently with the appointment of Sergei Kirienko, who appears to be uh, a lot less uh, sympathetic towards the communists and their sort of role in the Russian political system. I think it's definitely fair to say that since the initial sort of bargain between the presidential administration and the communist party that relations have become more frosty where the communists previously had a sort of a niche carved out for them in the political system that seems to be eroding so to my mind since the restoration of direct gubernatorial elections in 2012 or 2013 Two Communist Party candidates for governor have beaten United Russia incumbents or United Russia candidates. One of them, Sergei Levchenko in uh, Irkutsk, was essentially removed. It seemed on the pretext of sort of having badly handled flooding at the time. Another in Hakasia, a, a sort of a small republic in Siberia, reading the tea leaves is likely to be removed before the elections. United Russia lawmakers locally have tried to impeach him and there are accusations of corruption in his inner circle. What I think this all kind of knits together is a situation where any communist, so to speak, with ideas above their station will be targeted by the authorities. And this isn't just at the gubernatorial level. You see this most recently with the case of Denis Bandarenka, who is a local lawmaker in Saratov who has an unusually large national following for a communist. He's a sort of Marxist-Leninist Navalny, if you like. He has a, a sort of a, a multi-million or a, I think a 1.2 million YouTube followers uh, on a sort of politically charged blog. And he essentially, a, a couple of days after announcing that he'd be running against Vyacheslav Volodyan, the Duma speak in the September Duma elections, he was charged with participating in a pro-Navalny rally. He's now had a couple of corruption cases opened against him. So it's clear, I think, that anyone who, in the sort of apparatus of the Communist Party who bucks the system, is in for a world of pain from the judiciary, from law enforcement officials. I wouldn't necessarily, though, see this as unique to the Communist Party, because this is fundamentally a very similar story to what happened to Sergei Furgal, who's uh, the former 
Khabarov's governor from the LDPR, which is the sort of the, the, the Zhirinovsky party, the rival systemic force in Russian politics. So this, this seems to be less a story about the Communist Party narrowly than a more broad one, perhaps about the diminishing space for the systemic opposition in the political system. Nikolai, uh, so what we've just heard from Felix sounds like there is, at least on some occasions, a real competition seems like communist candidates can win not to the satisfaction of the Kremlin. So is there a real competition? I would say that there is or there can be at least real competition, but there are certain red lines and communists as a federal party cannot violate these red lines. In case of where communist candidates did manage to win against candidate backed by the Kremlin. Well, in case of Hakasia, which is, and uh, I, I, I do totally agree with Felix, which is tiny region without any real economic and political importance. Well, it was allowed for the communist candidate who did win elections to stay. But in case of Primorsky Krai, where the communist candidate did manage to win in the first round. He wasn't even allowed to participate in the next election. And it has been done by the federal leadership of the Communist Party. They did refuse to back their candidate, who appeared to be the winner in the first round of gubernatorial elections there. And they did not nominate any other strong candidate. And that's the story. So from one side, at the regional level, communists uh, can play active role and not necessarily they are totally controlled by their federal communist party leadership. From other side, the federal leadership of the communist party should be very loyal to the Kremlin. The problem is that the situation, political situation is changing. It means that red lines defined a while ago should be changed now, should be revised now because the balance is changing. And communists all the time trying to, well, increase room for maneuver to expand. But in many cases, they are very cruelly punished by the Kremlin, like in case of Sergei Levchenko mentioned by Felix. Right. So let us talk now about their leader, Gennady Zuganov, whose longevity is amazing. He's been in this position of the leader of the Communist Party well before Vladimir Putin became president. He survived something of an internal coup back in 2004, or should I say, quote unquote, coup. How do you, Nikolai, explain his longevity in his position? I would say that Grand Pazu, it's how he's called, uh, has good political instincts. And uh, he passed through very serious Darwinian selection to have his uh, position as uh, chairman of the Communist Party. First, he did manage to win in the pretty tough competition for CPSU, Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Heritage. There were several communist parties, and uh, uh, the Communist Party of Russian Federation didn't look as uh, the clear winner. Second, in the year 2002, when the Kremlin decided no more to cooperate with communists at the State Duma, and uh, the Kremlin revised its decision to give certain uh, important committees to communists. The party leadership with Zyuganov decided for all other communists, including that time speaker of the State Duma, Gennady Silesnov, not to come 
to the state Duma and thus somehow to put pressure onto the Kremlin. It didn't happen. So these guys who are eager to collaborate with the Kremlin, they've been expelled from the Communist Party. And it was for the first time when there was serious split. Then, uh, you are right, in 2004, there was serious inter-party conflict inspired by the Kremlin when there used to be two different congresses of the Communist Party. But that time, the Ministry of Justice finally <clears throat> did support uh, Zyuganov's communists against their opponents. And in the year 2006, the Kremlin did establish the Just Russia Party just in order to create a kind of social democratic alternative to the Communist Party. So far, it uh, did not demonstrate any, any real successes. But uh, the story all the time is repeating. And I think that Gennady Zyuganov did demonstrate very good skills when it goes about internal competition. Now it's much more tricky because it's understandable that there should be a generational shift in the Communist Party. That's why the Kremlin now gets a little bit nervous about whether it will be possible to renew leadership of the Communist Party in a way which uh, would allow the Kremlin to keep its control over the Communist Party. You mentioned that Zyuganov is referred to as Grandpa Zoo. <laughs> Felix, the party has grown much younger over time, and pollsters have been talking lately about the broadening rifts between grandparents and grandchildren, not as applies to the Communist Party necessarily, but in Russia at large. How would you describe the generation gap as applies to the Communist Party? Would you say that its younger members share the ideology, if not fully, or maybe some parts of it? Or uh, what is it that actually they share with the faction of the grandfathers, so to say? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's possible to overstate age as a denominator of kind of, of political approach and of, of ideology in the party, because there are older members, veteran members in good standing who want, I think, from Zyuganov a more combative approach to the Kremlin. But if we talk in, in ideological terms, then I think it's been apparent, I think, certainly for as long as I've been watching the Communist Party, that there is a split between sort of the Zyuganovite, if you like, faction, which I think still comprises the bulk of the party membership, which adheres to a kind of a politics of sort of conservative Stalinist nostalgia, perhaps, which is, I think, in many ways, resembles more a subculture than a, than a classical political party. And then that, I think, is set against a younger faction, which is much smaller, but because of the sort of, well, the aging of the, the party's activist base and membership, it's becoming more important, which is of people for whom the appeal of the Communist Party is not necessarily about the Soviet heritage or about Marxism-Leninism, but just because if you are on the left and want to make something of yourself in Russian politics, then there is no real obvious option other than the Communist Party. You find a lot of these people in sort of in an organization called the Left Front, which is sort of loosely affiliated and quite supportive of the Communist Party, but it, but it is distinct and, and is different. It's generally become a kind of a clearinghouse for followers of sort of what you might call the unorthodox left. So you might find people who call themselves Kropotkinites or democratic socialists or heaven forfend even Trotskyists in this kind of organization. And, and these, these people are 
not so represented in, in federal, in sort of elected positions yet, with some exceptions. I think there are some of these kind of unorthodox leftists in the Moscow city Duma, for instance, which is somewhere where the communists have had a lot of success recently. So there is a distinction, but it can be overplayed, I think, because at the same time, you can see people are in the higher echelons of the party, so really prominent people. So like Sergei Levchenko, the former Irkutsk governor that we've mentioned before, and like Valery Rashkin, the Moscow party chief, who are, I think, less comfortable with the KPRF's role as a sort of handmaiden to the Putin state than Zyuganov appears to be. And this, I, I don't necessarily read into perhaps an ideological difference into their position. They appear to be the same kind of Stalinists, Marxists, Leninists as, as Zyuganov is. But they are reflective, perhaps, of, of a party that is split in multiple ways, not just on generational lines, but on all kinds of internal axes, I think. Right. Do you have an idea of the Communist Party electorate, Felix? It used to be that those voting for the Communist Party were older, provincial, politically conservative. This constituency is arguably more likely to vote for the pro-Kremlin United Russia Party. Do you agree with that? Is it that today's Communist Party reach out to a different electorate? You are doubtful or skeptical about this age dividing line, but who is the electorate voting for the Communist Party, whether we're talking about older, more conservative or younger, more left wing and I don't know, trots kids. I don't think this accounts for many of them, but anyhow. I'd agree with that, yes. <laughs> right. So who is the electorate? Because this is still a party with quite a life, as both of you are telling me. Yeah, so I, I'm not entirely sceptical of age as a dividing line. I think it's one of many. I'll explain why perhaps. So as you kind of observed, perhaps 20, 25 years ago, the Communist Party was based in the so-called Red Belt, right? So the sort of line of, of cities and of regions stretching from, say, the Ukrainian border through the Urals into Siberia. And to some extent, that remains. There are cities in that sort of southern area of European Russia that are still Communist Party strongholds. So you could look at Tolyati or at Ulyanovsk. These are cities where the Communist Party, you know, these are, these are sort of classically Soviet post-industrial cities where the Communist Party still can compete with United Russia. Uh, and, in, and in some cases it can win. It can defeat United Russia in these cities first on sort of the local level or on the, the parliamentary level. However, I think you're correct in observing that the Red Belt as a coherent kind of entity no longer exists. And that kind of conservative, provincial, working class, perhaps electorate has moved towards United Russia. And the Communist Party has shown strength. And this is crucial, I think, because the Communist Party is a party in long term decline. It attracts now perhaps uh, somewhere between a half and a third of it attracted in its heyday. The places it has shown resilience are perhaps in the big cities and in the so-called kind of protest-inclined regions, so perhaps in the Far East and in parts of Siberia. But you see that the Communist Party has been relatively resilient in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg and Novosibirsk, so the, the, the three biggest cities in Russia. And I suspect that the reason for this is rather sort of twofold. The first is that there is, as I alluded to earlier, a sort of a cadre of younger communist elected officials who can perhaps present a more appealing 
vision of communism of the communist party to the one that that Zyuganov and his sort of cohort present so there are people in uh, the Moscow city Duma who sort of adhere to a sort of much vaguer watered down sort of democratic socialism that can probably resonate to some extent among the sort of anti-government electorate of these bigger cities however i would also i would also probably say that at least part of this is because by virtue of being, as Nikolai has said, the only real party in Russia, the only party with a serious, hefty grassroots organization, the Communist Party is always likely to be the first port of call for any sort of protest-aligned electorate. So if you're a sort of a, let's, for the sake of argument, a Navalny sympathizer in Moscow, and you're going to vote, you're very unlikely to vote for the LDPR or for Spravedlivaya Rasia, a fair Russia, because... Those two parties have, have in recent years, though they may have flirted with the with sort of radical anti-government opposition in the past, have made it very clear that their current orientation is very pro-Kremlin and pro-Putin. Maybe you'll vote for Yablaka, but they don't run many candidates. And frankly, the relationship between the anti-systemic opposition and Yablaka is probably even more toxic than its relationship with the communists. So you're left with the communists uh, as a sort of young liberal in Moscow or Petersburg or Novosibirsk. There's... It's, it's the party that shows the most independence from the Kremlin. It shows the most sort of political spontaneity. And it's in almost all cases, if you're looking to maximize the value of your vote against United Russia, the most sensible and the most obvious vote. You're voting for a party that is on some level against the establishment, against the Kremlin, but that is also allowed to run in elections and is on occasion, as we said earlier, allowed to win them. So it becomes, I think, more... Uh, sort of a quid pro quo on the part of this kind of opposition electorate, their relationship with the Communist Party. Okay, I have to admit, I myself voted for a communist in my precinct at the election in 2019. Well, you're an excellent example of this. Then. <laughs> yes, I guess I am. Uh, I, I would never have believed I would vote for a communist if somebody had told me so some 20 years ago. But I did vote for a communist candidate, and she won in my district in Moscow for the city assembly. Nikolai, what about the um, difference between the faction, the Duma faction of the Communist Party, of course, led by Zuganov, and regional communists who, as, as far as I understand from your discussion, may be very different in different regions? Do they think of themselves as one? And to what extent are they all loyal to the leadership, uh, loyal to the faction, or do they have their own separate lives to some extent? I would start with saying that <clears throat> when speaking about the social base of communists, we should not be limited by electoral geography. And uh, the very uh, idea of the Red Belt appeared at the time of Yeltsin when those regions were led by communist governors. So it was loyal voting or loyal reporting about voting at a time when communists did occupy pretty important positions. Now we do see a lot of communists getting their votes in regional centers, strong organizations in universities. And this is quite natural that youth in Russia, well, is sharing leftist uh, views much more than anybody else. And the same is with regions. Regional branches cannot be seen as the same communist party as uh, what we see at the federal level. It's like, say, buying a franchise. 
you are allowed to participate in regional politics, if not by the list of the United Russia, which is very well competitive, then the second legal opportunity for businessmen, for anybody, is the Communist Party. So if you are a businessman from construction sector, for example, like Sergei Levchenko, who used to be governor of Irkutsk region, you can easily have the Communist Party branch in your region as your political base. And so it's once again trade-off. So you are delivering votes to the federal leadership. You are giving them money. But in exchange, you are getting their banners and uh, the status of being representative of the second uh, biggest political party in the country. So we should not think that uh, communists in regions are uh, absolutely the same. Even, let's take Moscow. Even Moscow did uh, demonstrate very serious difference after 2019 elections when several communists have been backed, just like Maria, you've told us, according to the smart voting by Navalny, they came to the city Duma and they did start to act on their own because they did feel that they do enjoy popular support. So not necessarily they were doing what the federal leadership did order them to do. That's why two of them last year have been expelled from the communist party. And that's by the way, clear effect and clear evidence that the model of smart voting is not that bad as it's described by uh, some experts. So far, we do have two communist governors. One is Andrei Klitschkov in Ariel region. And this is one case of cooperation between the Kremlin and the Communist Party. Ariel region was given to the Communist Party, and the former governor used to be from another political party, but not from the United Russia. So Klitschkov, when running for his governor's office, has not been opposed by any United Russia candidate. Vice versa, he was supported by the United Russia in this region. So this is the model of loyal cooperation between Communist Party and the Kremlin. Valentin Konovalov, the leader of Hakasia, is a very different example. He is a young guy. He is not directly controlled by Moscow party leadership, and he did win against the Kremlin-backed candidate. That's why he faces very serious troubles in his region, and uh, I think Felix is right. We should wait for his removal. But in order to demonstrate that uh, relationship between regional communists and federal leadership is not that quiet and harmonic, let me mention that now there is huge scandal going on in Hantimansi district where Moscow did decide to put its candidate to the position of the leader of uh, regional branch and he is strongly opposed by local communists and in result they are leaving from the communist party uh, and this tension, tension between regional communists from one side and federal leadership from other side, it's increasing. And there is a kind of a paradox. The more Kremlin controls Zuganov, the less Zuganov controls regional branches. And this is quite natural because in order to get benefits from cooperation with the Communist Party, the Kremlin puts pressure onto Zuganov not to nominate strong candidates, not to let those candidates who are winning 
during the campaign to survive till the voting day and so on, it creates understandable problems in regions because they do see that instead of choosing strong candidate, Moscow is offering weak one, not letting strong candidates to win, not letting regional communists to play a role uh, they are eager to play. That's why this tension is increasing. And thus, possibilities for the Kremlin to use the Communist Party in a way uh, they did use it in past are almost over. Okay. So, Felix, I would like you to uh, tell us what is the communist stance toward Alexei Navalny. And apparently from what uh, we just heard from Nikolai and what both of you were talking about, there is no one single stance there. Apparently the stance of the faction and of Zuganov personally is different from that of some among the communists. Yeah, so I would really echo everything Nikolai has said there. I think that the primary distinction when it comes to the question of Navalny among the communists right now is between the federal leadership and regional local parties. So the federal leadership essentially takes an extremely hard line on Navalny, saying that he's a a traitor, that he's bringing an orange revolution, you know, all of this kind of very sort of Kremlin-style rhetoric, really. In the regions, it's quite a different picture. And in fact, it's almost striking the extent to which the regions are, if not uniformly pro-Navalny, then uniformly almost open to him. They're open to some kind of cooperation. They're open to the idea of drawing some support from his supporters. They're open to some kind of loosely defined watered down cooperation. And I think this probably speaks to different electoral incentives. So whereas Zuganov or the deputies around him will be re-elected to the Duma based on the 10% that the Communist Party will surely get in, in these Duma elections minimum, if you are a regional leader, then if Navalny can add 5% or 10% through smart voting, then that's hugely important to you. And that could make the difference between Sergei Levchenko becoming a deputy and Sergei Levchenko not becoming a deputy in the Irkutsk region. That's hugely important for him. I think the real ground zero for this kind of pro-Navalny regional communist sentiment is the Moscow City Duma, where that 2019 election, which saw the communists go, I think, from five to 13 seats. So they almost wiped out United Russia's majority. Many of the communist lawmakers in that body are quite candid about the fact that they believe that smart voting for them really pushed them over the edge in quite a number of districts and that it's something that they should be looking at again in these elections. I think that this this is part of the reason I think why I'm a little bit skeptical of the age distinction, because plenty of these people are not young. You know, Valery Rashkin, who's the head of the Moscow party, is in his late 60s, but he is, if not pro-Navalny, then sympathetic to his, the protesters who came out for him and is is keen to, I think, harness that sentiment for communist ends. So this seems to be more like a sort of a regional versus central and a tactical split than, a, than an ideological one or a generational one. That being said, I think that all the other things to one side, the, the sort of the mythology and the ideology of the party is important here, because at the end of the day, this is a party that sees itself as, in some sense, the, the sort of ideological inheritor of the Leninist Bolshevik tradition. And if you're in a position where a, a dissident is being hounded by the state, then that revolutionary impulse is quite powerful. 
Rashkin is in his late 60s, so I'm skeptical that this is about a generation as much as about tactics and, and possibly about ideology. But I think that generally what is a, a uniting factor throughout sort of the, the ranks of the Communist Party is that this is, among other things, on some level, a revolutionary party, you know, the, the inheritor of the Leninist tradition of the Bolshevik tradition. And that impulse towards, I suppose, revolution, it does tug on some heartstrings. And when I think a lot of rank and file communists see what is happening with, you know, with Navalny and his, his sort of hounding by the state, then on some level they do sympathise as a result of that ideological inheritance, I think. So that knits together a, a series of disparate trends which lead towards kind of communist sympathy for Navalny, I think. Okay. My last question is to you, Nikolai. So, of course, in September there will be legislative election in Russia. What do you expect for the Communist Party? What is the likely showing of the Communist Party, do you think, come September? It's not that easy to speculate, and uh, as calculations by Alexander Krinev did show in recent 2020 regional elections, neither Communist Party nor Liberal Democratic Party could catch votes lost by the United Russia. So at one side, United Russia was losing voters, but no more Communist Party and Liberal Democratic Party, which usually did play the role of a little Kremlin's helpers, were capable to catch these votes. This means that, well, not only the Kremlin, but the Communist Party itself is facing very serious problems. And I think that position of the Communist Party can be described as between the rock and hard place. At one place, the federal leadership is closer to the Kremlin, so they should somehow react to the Kremlin's pressure. From other side, regional communist activists of the Communist Party are much closer to citizens. That's why they should react on to their grievances. And uh, that's why the tension is caused not that much by internal Communist Party problems, but uh, by the fact that citizens are more and more dissatisfied uh, with the government in general and with the Communist Party leadership, which is playing on the side of the government. So it's hard to make any uh, predictions due to the fact also that we do not know so far the Kremlin's game. First of all, it's not finally decided, or at least it's not announced, whether the new state Duma will be elected by the same system uh, when half of seats will be distributed by party lists and half uh, through single mandate uh, districts. And recently, when meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin, leaders of Duma factions, including Gennady Zyuganov and uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, were complaining all the time that at uh, regional elections, all the time, the system is changing in favor of single mandate races as the Kremlin thinks that uh, in single mandate races, it's much easier to use administrative resources. And that's why to get the candidate to be elected. And 2016 experience did clearly show that, uh, well, there is some ground for this. But in my view, these forthcoming elections can be more similar to 2011 elections uh, than to 2016 elections because there is growing negative attitude, well, among citizens first, and there is less and less 
capable political machines in regions led by newly replaced governors to deliver results needed for the Kremlin. That's why I think that depending A, on the Kremlin's tactics and B, on the Communist Party tactics, the Communist Party can increase essentially its number of seats at the state Duma uh, in single mandate races. Last time they got only seven seats and all these seats were given by the Kremlin. This time I think, especially if the model of smart voting will work, they can count on getting many more seats. And so I do agree with Felix that uh, they can think that 10% uh, by party list if there will be elections by uh, proportional system in forthcoming Duma elections, this 10% is almost guaranteed and uh, they can exceed essentially this number. Okay, in another seven months, we'll find out and we'll see whether your forecast was correct. Thank you both. Thank you, Felix. Thank you, Nikolai. Thank you. My pleasure.